Good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, John mentioned I've been uh, dealing with some sickness this week. Overnight last night, it kind of dropped from my nose into my chest, which is why I sound a little like a frog today. So, um, but as long as my voice holds out, we will uh, we'll look at God's word and see what He has for us today. Sound good? So you can pray for my voice as I go, and that's why I've got like a big thing of tea right here. So thankful to Mandy for uh, giving that to me today. Um, we are uh, we are doing a series called Upside Down Axioms. And uh, we are looking at the teachings of Jesus. In particular, we're looking at the difficult ones, the ones that are confusing or controversial, the ones that don't make sense to us, at least on the surface. And we're diving into those because, um, as you know, 2019 for us as a church is a year that we're really focusing on what it means to follow Jesus, that we are in hot pursuit of our Savior. We want to we be people that are entirely possessed by Him. We're going to talk about that this morning. We want to be people that are um, completely committed to his mission and to be part of his community and to to make disciples. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is we can't do that unless we understand the whole Jesus. Now, Jesus is God in the flesh, and so we're not going to ent- entirely understand him uh, this side of eternity. We, we have all eternity to, to get to know our Savior. Uh, but there are many things that he said and did that to our 21st century minds and ears just don't make sense. And so we have to understand those parts of who he is and those parts of what he said if we're really going to be followers of Jesus. And so we're taking 13 weeks to look at those things that we often avoid or dismiss. And last week we looked at prayer and the fact that the kind of prayer that Jesus called us to is really an upside-down mentality when it comes to prayer. Um, to, but... Here's the thing. Prayer on the servant, we all sort of understand prayer. We're going to keep reading, and some of you did this week, because we were in Luke 11 last week. We ended in verse 13. Some of you started to read verses 14 and onward, and you're like, hold up. Prayer makes sense. This doesn't. And so we're, we're looking at the next section, which is actually all about demons, uh, and possession. So if you talk about upside down, this is what we're going to look at today. So we're going to start in verse 14. We're going to go to 26. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you, or come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, he is, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest, 
and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Pretty clear? (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) So Jesus has this odd encounter, right? he's, He's going through throughout Judea and, and Galilee, and he's um, showing demonstrations that God has arrived, that, that his kingdom is coming, that, that there is good news. And part of that good news is expressed in his authority to be able to cast out the enemies of God from people and their influence over people. And so he has this really, really odd encounter where he drives out a demon, and then he gets flack for it from the religious leaders. And I love this. It goes, okay, let me clear things up with a story. And then he tells this story about demons and arid places and leaving and coming back and finding a house clean and bringing seven with... By the end, you're like, I'm more confused than the first part. <laughs> like, I, th- I thought we were just talking about demons and being cast out. Now, all of a sudden, there's this strange story. What does this all mean? <clears throat> well, I, I, we're going to talk about demons specifically for a second, but I I want you to see that that Jesus is not just teaching us about how to drive out demons. That's not his point. He's actually talking about much, something much bigger uh, than, than just demonic influence. He's actually talking about how people experience transformation. He's talking about, um, what it means to really experience change, to be transformed, to be renewed, to, to, be, um, to, to, to be released from bondage, to be delivered, to, to experience the kind of life that, that God intends for us to experience. How does that actually take place and what does that look like? Um, now, before we get to, to those questions, I do need to say something about specifically demons and, and possessions. And, and you can't get around this when you read this passage. You have to come to the conclusion that there are, in fact, personal, supernatural, evil beings. And the Bible describes many of those beings as demons. That's reality. Um, and it's clear when you read through the Gospels that demons can and they do influence people. Um, we've culturally speaking, and even in the church, we call that possession. And um, I've had a lot of conversations with some of you about how unhelpful that word is, because it it makes it sounds like it's either all or nothing. And and we prefer to to use the term influence, but they do influence people. They they essentially come and they capitalize on our brokenness and our sin, and they have the ability to come into someone's life and to dominate them. And they can dominate them in a number of ways. They can dominate their thoughts. They can dominate their emotions. And they, like this man here, they can even dominate their physical condition. Now, it's also clear <clears throat> that anything that, it, that Jesus experienced while he was on mission, we should also expect to experience if we're going to join him on mission. And that's why we're not shying away from 
a passage like this that doesn't seem to make sense for us on the surface. Because if we're going to pursue Jesus, it means that we pursue him on the mission that he began. And that mission was to make disciples. And so what that means is, if you're on the same mission as Jesus, then you should expect, expect to experience and to encounter demonic opposition from the enemies of God. We should all expect that. That we're going to run up against that in our own hearts or in the lives of the people that we are sharing with or including in God's family that we're on mission to. Now, so we have to be prepared for that. Here's what I want you to to know. Because anytime you start talking about this, the the tendency is to fall into one or two of two camps. And I, I think both are unhelpful. There are churches and there are Christians who have fallen into the camp of underestimating the power of Satan and the power of demons, and there are Christians that have fallen in the camp of overestimating Satan and demons' power. So I want to talk about those just real quick. On the one hand, we we should not overestimate their power. Um, you notice that, like when Jesus is walking through, when he's when he's on mission, when he's meeting with people, when he's he, he's interacting with people. He doesn't treat everyone as though they're possessed by a demon. Did you Have you picked that up? Um, there are people that are mute and he casts out a demon. There are people that are blind and he doesn't cast out blindness. He heals them. And then there are other people that, that need the, the good news of the gospel and he does neither to them, but he proclaims the good news to them. So he doesn't treat everyone the same way. He, he understands that there are various forms of influence over our hearts that we need to be released from. He doesn't act as though demons are always the problem, because oftentimes they're not, and we shouldn't either. So here's, it would be unhelpful as we're thinking about, as a church, kind of, you know, including people in our homes and and inviting people to our dinner tables and into our groups, inviting them on Sunday morning, um, as we look around at the people in our life, it would be unhelpful for us to look around at everyone and ask the question, gee, I wonder what demon they have. You know? Like, I've got, I have the demon of, of throat sickness this morning that it needs to be cast out, right? Or, you know, you're, you go to work tomorrow morning and you're like, my boss has the demon of irritability and he needs to be released in the name of Jesus. Or the guy who just cut me off on the way to work obviously has the demon of impatience that they're in bondage to and they just need to be released. See, you're laughing, but there are Christian churches that teach that. Exactly that. That all of your problems and all of the problems of the world stem from demonic activity and and, and our primary job is to just go out and say, in the name of Jesus, you are released from that. Now, Jesus isn't that narrow-minded, and we shouldn't be either. Don't overestimate their power. But then on the other hand, don't underestimate their power either. Um, Because here's the deal. The root issue for all of us and all people everywhere is not demonic activity. It's the broken condition of our hearts as a result of sin. 
that, that in our heart of hearts, the way that we are uh, born into is a nature and the way that we nurture that nature throughout our life is that, that our hearts in their unregenerate condition reject God's power and reject His reign over our lives. We want autonomy from Him. And, now, and here's where it comes in to, to say we shouldn't underestimate demons because Satan and demons, what do they do? They come in and they play on that brokenness. They amplify the insecurity that comes from our sinful hearts and they, they whisper to us in a sense. We talked about this back in the summer in the Ephesians series. You know, they, they come in they go, you know, you're right to distrust God. You're right to fear his reign over your life. You, it's it's a good idea to doubt him. Don't give him your whole heart. You know, you're, you're right to reject him. He's hurt you. He's caused pain in your life. Don't submit to yourself to him. In other words, what do they, what do, they do? They come in and they distort the truth of God with a lie. It's the same tactic as the, the first demon Satan had with Eve in the garden, Right? So don't discount their ability to destroy and influence people's lives because the truth is they are at work and they're doing everything that they can within their power to undermine God's reign and undermine his mission. If we're going to be serious about being on that mission, we're going to run up against that. That's the truth. Um, now, how do you know then? Like you're you're interacting with somebody and they're they don't believe the gospel. They seem to be stuck in their sin. How do you know then the difference between somebody who is is um, just stuck in their unbelief and somebody that's maybe being influenced by demonic activity? My conviction is that you will never know the difference until you share the gospel with them. That if you immediately assume that what they're dealing with is is somehow demonic, um, and you skirt around sharing the good news of Jesus with that person, that you will never know the answer. But because we know that, that Satan and, and his demons are opposed to not just the work of God, but in particular the good news of Jesus, which is the thing that releases people from the bondage of their sin, that when you share the good news, then you will know. Uh, I was going around um, in Shadrach on one of our trips, and we were praying for different people, and we came to the house of a woman who claimed to be a Satan worshiper. And we started to talk to her about her life and, and about her family and about her beliefs, and and we just shared the gospel with her. It's interesting because she wanted her children to go to and be part of the local church. And she wanted them to believe. And we said, why is it that you want this for your kids, but you don't want it for yourself? And she kept saying, I'm afraid. So what does that mean? Like, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that God's going to reject you or afraid he won't forgive you? She goes, no, 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 I'm just afraid. Well, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of someone or something? And she wouldn't tell us. But we, we were clear to be able to share the gospel. And the sense that I got from her is that she desperately wanted to believe, but there was someone or something telling her that if she did, she would be destroyed. 
And so at that point, we, we prayed for her to be released from demonic activity. Now, we didn't see any change in terms of her, the, her mindset or her belief system or anything, but we left just reminding her of the good news again and again and again and said, you, you can run to him at any moment that you want to. You don't have to be afraid. And I, I still don't know if she believes that. I'm hoping that I get a chance to see her in a couple weeks. But here's the thing. You, you might be saying, I don't know anybody like that, though. Like I, you know, I, in my daily interactions, I, I couldn't put my finger on somebody who would go, yeah, I'm a Satan worshiper. Like, <laughs> we're a lot more subtle about that in the U.S., I guess, than, than in Haiti. But we can look at a passage like this and go, well, like, maybe the story that Jesus is talking about is irrelevant to me then. Because I don't bump up against this kind of thing every day. Well, maybe you do more than you realize. Because regardless of the source of the issue, the brokenness that's going on, whether it's, it, it's something that's being influenced by demonic activity or something that's just our own unbelief in the gospel or, or the people that are around us, um, Jesus is trying to show us that, that this isn't just about driving out demons, that in fact, uh, all of us experience the brokenness of sin, all of us experience the influence of demonic activity that wants to capitalize on that unbelief, and that all of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, will seek some kind of solution to their problem. All of us regardless of your religious beliefs, regardless of whether or not you're an atheist or an agnostic or a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Satan worshiper, you are going to, to, to run to something to fix the brokenness of your heart. We talk about that all the time, but that's true of every single man, woman, and child who exists. And, and, and here's the thing. There are always going to be out there people and methods and philosophies that tell you, I've got the solution to what you're dealing with. I've got the fix. You come to me, and I'll make you better. Um, now, how, how am I seeing that here? Well, look at this. When Jesus casts out the demons, what do the religious leaders say? They say, you're, you're doing this by the power of Satan, essentially. And they're trying to undercut and undermine what Jesus is doing. And Jesus turns the tables on them in a very surprising way. And in verse 19, he says, Now if I do this by the power of Satan, by whom do your followers drive them out? Beelzebul was just another name for, for the prince of demons or Satan, the devil. By whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that there were religious leaders in Jesus' day who claimed to be able to cast out demons before Jesus ever even showed up on the scene. Did you know that? There were people that were exercising demons in the first century that had nothing to do with Jesus. And people were coming to them for help. You're skeptical and you don't believe me. Here's another example. Acts 19, verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. 
You see it? There was a group of Jewish believers who were saying, if you're oppressed by demons, we've got the solution for you. Now, if they were operating in the 21st century, they'd probably have an infomercial on it like three in the morning. But there were people out there that were, that were claiming to have the fix, to be able to free people from bondage. Now, now if, you, if you keep reading in Acts 19, you find out it does not go well for them. And uh, they end up naked and getting their butts kicked <laughs> by, the, by those demons. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is there, there are people that are trying to help people. And whose power do you think they're using? Is it God's power or is it Satan's power? And the answer I think that Jesus is trying to, to get at is it's neither. Because on the one hand, it's not Satan's power because um, I, Jesus is actually making the assumption that they're driving out demons, that it's having an effect, and no house can be divided against itself. So there were Jewish leaders who were helping people get free from bondage. So it couldn't be Satan's power, but on the other hand, they weren't transforming people by God's power because God's power resides in Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And the implication is, you're not for me, you're not with me. He's talking to the same people that are driving out demons. So it's, it's, they're, they're not... They're not doing it by Jesus' power. So it's neither God's power and it's not Satan's power. It's some other source. This might sound weird to you, but think about the way that people often try to get a hold of their problems today. Many, many, many of the solutions that we seek after for all kinds of things, all sorts of bondages that we experience have nothing to do with God and nothing to do with Satan at the very same time. But we look for them. And we look to all kinds of methods and strategies and gurus and experts to help us overcome our difficulties. Things like depression and substance abuse and anger and eating disorders and anxiety and loneliness. I mean, if you don't believe me, just type in any one of those things into Google and see how many millions of pages come up that say, I've got the solution for you, right? They're everywhere. Now, now here's the thing about a lot of those solutions. Many of them are just complete frauds, right? They just don't work. It's obvious. Like they're just trying to sell you something and they have no intention of helping you. But here's the other thing. This is a surprising thing. Many of them actually do seem to work, don't they? They do seem to have an effect over people's lives and, and actually help them in some way to to beat whatever it is that they're facing. To beat depression and to beat anxiety and to to overcome stress and to overcome loneliness and to, to, to overcome alcoholism. All kinds of strategies and, and, and ways to do this. One, here's a trivial one. Did you know that, that um, um, uh, thrift stores and antique shops are overflowing with an influx of stuff these days? Do you know why? Like every antique store and thrift shop, like they don't know what to do with the stock because people are coming in and just saying, here, take all my stuff. Why? Yeah, Marie Kondo. 
who's, there's a show called Tidying Up that's wildly popular. Now, why is it wildly popular? Because there are people on that show that are dealing with stress and anxiety and depression. And, and much of what's causing those things, at least on the surface, is the fact that they've got too much stuff. And that stuff is, is kind of a visual representation of the burden that's on those people. And so this tiny little Japanese woman, who's sweet as can be, comes, you know, strolling into their house and, and just goes, this has to go, and this has to go, and this has to go. And they'd be like, okay, that, it's going to hurt, but I'm going to do it. And what happens? They come back after two or three months of this kind of purge, and does it seem like people are healed? It does. People are feel less stressed because they've they've gotten rid of some of the the things that were causing a burden to them. They feel lighter. They feel less anxious as a result of going through this process that she's led them through. And that's it's a good picture, actually, of the fact that there, there are so many things that keep us in bondage and solutions or seeming solutions to those things that are out. I mean, there are a million of them for every ailment, right? Now, here's the issue. And this is why I think the story is so, so meaningful and key is that one of the things that Jesus is trying to say through this story is, yeah, it, it has an effect. It, it, it causes a level of transformation. But if you turn to any other power but me, in the end, you're going to be worse off than you were when you started. Turn to any other solution, any other source, any other method, any other guru any other philosophy or strategy for straightening up your life, and you're going to end up worse than you were at the first. So the Pharisees, they, they're claiming that they can help you just as well as I can. They're saying that I do it by demonic power, and they don't. So go to them instead of me, is what the Pharisees are saying. And Jesus is going, look, if you do that, you might get healed for a while. But look what happens. Then he tells this strange story, right? When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it, and then says, I will return to the house that I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Now, it looks immaculate, but there's nobody there. And so it goes and it takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and they live there and the final condition is worse than the first. In other words, you can tidy up your life. You can follow the advice and you can put everything in order and the world will think that you have your stuff together. You can be on Netflix if you follow this. And, and you can be an example to the rest of the world, yet the reality will be that the lights are on, but nobody's home. 
And, the, and that's kind of the central, the, one of the things that Jesus is saying is that just as houses are built to be possessed by their owner, so our hearts are built to be possessed by their creator. That you can't get around that. Our hearts are intended to be possessed, to be filled, to be, to be utilized by the one who made our hearts. They're an empty vessel until someone comes and lives in it. And unless it's the Creator that comes and takes possession of our hearts, unless He comes and resides in it to protect it from attack, then the home, which is made to be lived in, will be wide open to be, to, for something else to move into it. Something is going to live in the home of your heart. It's just a question of who or what that thing will be. And Jesus is saying, unless it's me, no matter how much it looks like you cleaned up your life and got your act together, you're going to be worse off than you were before. I, I would love to um, do like a 30-year follow-up on like the families that are part of the show. Just to see like, hey... What if, you know, we, we followed up with you after three months. Things were going great. You were on top of the world. You know, you had mastery over all this stuff. Now 30 years have gone by. Tell us how you're doing. And, and my theory is that you would probably get a number of reactions. You would probably get the people that say, well, it was good for a time, but you know what, the 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 stress of having to keep my house immaculate was actually became a different kind of burden. And I realized it didn't just, it didn't take away the stress. It just changed it into something else that I had to maintain. You probably have those kind of people. But you probably have the other kind of people that go, you know what, I've been able to maintain it. I've been stress-free. You know, I've, I've, it's, it's, things have been going well in terms of our home. But here's what I discovered. Tidying up was helpful for my stress level, but it did nothing for me when I lost my husband. Because it, the, something happened to me that, was at, that, that shook a foundation deeper in my heart than, than what tidying up was able to, 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 to resolve. And that's what Jesus is saying is... You're going to encounter something along the path of life that other solutions, though they may seem to work in the short term, will not actually end up fixing the home in the long term. They'll just make things look like they're good until a hurricane comes through and knocks down the stinking home. And I, I've, I've, you know, just in the, what, 10 years or so that I've been a pastor... The three years that I was a missionary on the college campus before that, one of the things that I've noticed about people over and over and over again is that they seek the easiest but the shallowest solution to their problems. And then something inevitably comes along to shake the foundation at a deeper level than they were ready for. Now... Here's the thing about Americans, though. We love to look like we've got it together. We love to look like we're tidy. 
the hardest thing for the people that are on that show is exposing people to their mess. It's coming to reality with the fact that they don't have things cleaned up. But man, how proud are we when we actually do get a hold of those things, when we do seem to be the masters of our own universe? Do you notice, though, that Jesus is always saying everywhere he goes, like, it's the people that don't have their lives together that are the closest to the kingdom of God? It's the prostitutes and the poor and the sinners and the tax collectors who are closer to the kingdom of God than those of us that seem like we have control over our houses and things seem to be swept up and in order? And that's the whole reason why Jesus says to the Pharisees, look, the sinners get in before you do. Because they were masters at it. And the whole reason that he can say that, the people who are a wreck and don't look like they have their, their lives together are closest to the kingdom of God is because, think about it, the root lie... The, the, the primary brokenness in all of our hearts is, is this, that we are in charge and that we don't need God. That He's somehow a good addition to our lives in those seasons when we need it the most, but primarily most of the time we've got our stuff together. So it's funny because like, that means that any time that you, you've used another method to gain mastery over your house, to sweep up so that things look in order that, that doesn't actually require Jesus to do the filling and the cleaning means that you are actually succumbing to the lie. Isn't that upside down from the way most of us think? Now, here's the thing, though. As the church, we have to be incredibly careful about this. And incredibly wise because we are called as a church, are we not, to help people regardless of whether or not they believe what we believe. Is that a true statement? We're called to, to help the poor whether or not they come to know the name of Jesus. We're called to, to help the sick whether or not they believe what we believe. We're called to treat everyone as though they're a brother and sister potentially in Christ, even if they never become a brother and sister in Christ in actuality. Those are true statements, correct? So we're, we're obligated to that work. And we're committed to that work in our pantry, in, our, in the community garden, in Haiti, in a, even in our neighborhoods and community groups. Please don't qualify the work that you do in the name of the kingdom of God only to people that you think might come to know Jesus. That's actually being restrictive. Jesus gave away the love of God to everyone, knowing that most people were going to reject his message. So we have to, we have to be okay with that to, to some level. But, and there's a big but, we, we can't fall into the trap of believing that somehow we've done our job just by meeting people's external needs. If we, if we believe that, then we have fallen short of addressing the real problem. Do you see that? Does that make sense? And I think, as a church, we've actually fallen into that at points 
in, ter- in, our, in our existence. Where we, we've pulled back from, we've held back good news from people that need to experience not just physical deliverance, but spiritual deliverance in the name of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we know that the only way to really deliver someone, the only way that someone's going to experience permanent and eternal transformation is is by inviting them to become a disciple of Jesus. That's the only way it's going to happen. And we, we, we shouldn't be ashamed of that. We shouldn't shrink back from that. That every every person was created for their creator to have a home in their heart, to be possessed by him and him alone. And if they're not possessed by him and him alone, they're going to be possessed by something else. So to leave someone in that condition is to actually not love them. Um, Mandy's a, a medical professional, and she treats people all the time. She works in in, um, cardiac care. And um, one of the things that I've noticed is that um, they're not just, as a cardiology unit, interested in helping people with their symptoms. Right? If someone comes in and says, I have chest pain, they're going to figure out the root cause of that chest pain. They're not just going to say, here's some medicine to relieve your chest pain and then send them on their way because they might be having a heart attack and not know it. So, so to just treat the symptom but not the, the root cause is to, is, is to break their Hippocratic oath. Now the problem is that patients, when they come in, they really only want to be treated for the symptom and not the root cause. They just want the pain to stop. And I, I think in the same way, when it comes to our own hearts, when it comes to the work of the church, people, when they encounter us, they just they want a solution to their pain. They just want the symptoms to stop. This is what I'm trying to get at. If we're only about treating symptoms, we'll never actually experience them finding true transformation. And we'll end up leading people to a place where they're worse off than they were at the beginning. That's what Jesus is saying. And so just think about the people that are around you. Think think about the people that you interact with in your your daily course of life or in the ministries that you participate in our church, the people that don't yet know Jesus. Are you allowing them to continue in the deceit that because their way of living, maybe it works for them, but are you allowing them to, to, to not hear the truth. To not understand that there is a deeper brokenness in their hearts and that unless they turn to Jesus, they'll be seven times worse than they were before. That's challenging for me because I don't like to be that bold with people. I want them to like me and I want them to keep coming back. But Jesus said, if I'm... If I do that forever without sharing the truth in love, then I'm not really loving. The human heart must be mastered by something or someone 
And the more we give ourselves over to other masters, the more we're going to be possessed by them. Now, here's the last part. That Jesus says, I and I alone am the one who can transform people forever. I'm the only one that can do it. He, he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. We know that that was the reality. That Jesus said, I, I have so much power to shape a life, to deliver people from the things that they're experiencing that I don't even have to do heavy lifting to do it. I, they just need to experience my finger pointed in their direction for them to experience permanent transformation. And then he goes on to this wild tangent in verse 21 about the strong man and being fully armed and guards in the house and possessions are safe, but someone stronger comes and overtakes him, takes away the armor that he trusted in, divides up his... Like, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that you and I are not strong enough in and of ourselves to defend our hearts. To, to hold on to the transformation that we so desperately want to experience. That it's not just enough to believe in Jesus and to visit him on Sundays. Because if we do that, then essentially what you're doing is you're still guarding your own house. And that means that something stronger eventually is going to overtake you. And the only way that you're going to experience lasting change is if you come to the strongest man. You, you come to the one with the most secure armor and you say, will you come and possess me? Because if you don't, it's going to be someone else and I want it to be you. I know I'm talking to primarily a room full of believers, but we have to ask this question. Are we being possessed by Jesus? And it's not a trivial question. And the answer is very much in doubt. We see, we often think of possession in a negative way that like the whole exorcist thing that some, you know, spinning heads and projectile vomiting and walking upstairs backwards and all that. But you will be possessed by something. Something is going to have mastery over your heart. And the truth is that if anything that does possess you other than Jesus is in fact going to drive you insane. And Jesus says, I'm the only one who drives you towards sanity. <laughs> towards who God made you to be. Towards what I intended you. I, I, can, I and I alone can bring you to your senses. Now, how do we do that? Um, Ephesians 4 gives us a great picture. We talked about this back in the summer. But Paul says this, the way to, to, to be possessed by Jesus is to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's to put off the old and to put on the new. And to do that again and again and again and again. And to be part of a community that reminds you to do it again and again and again. And so that means to put off the old means you look around at the landscape of your life. And you pray and you ask the Spirit of God. And you say, are there any areas of of the heart of my home, the home of my heart, where I am still trying to keep possession myself? 
where I've got broomstick and dustpan in hand, and I am working like crazy to protect and to clean that area of my heart, but I'm not able to do it, and I'm tired, and I'm worn out, and something else is possessing me in that area. It could be in your career. It could be in your family. It could be the way that you think about and, and deal with your money. It could be the way that you think about your ethnicity and your culture. It could be your perspective on social issues or, or, or politics. that you, you haven't submitted those things to Jesus yet. You're still operating in the, in the old attitude of your mind rather than laying those things at Jesus' feet and going, am I really being possessed in this area by you? Or do I just think I am? Do, do I just assume that you agree with me rather than saying you're Lord and I am not and I submit my, my beliefs and I submit my actions and I submit my emotions to you for you to do whatever the heck you want with those things? So being possessed by Jesus means there is nothing in my life that I won't turn over to you because you're the strong one and I'm not. In fact, pray this prayer. Jesus, I can't be trusted with and fill in the blank. And, and, and repeat that prayer until you actually believe it. I can't be trusted with this because I can't do it on, on my own. And when you do that, you'll begin to change. He'll begin to possess you. But then there's the other half of that, which is to put on the new. And that means to continually rejoice in who you are in Christ. The fact that he has come into your heart and cleansed you from the inside out. There's a, a moment where Jesus' disciples are rejoicing because they have this new power that Jesus has given them. And they go out in his name and they start to cast out demons and they start to deliver people. And they're like, man, this is crazy. We have this power to now pray and things happen. The forces of evil are pushed back in the name of Jesus because he lives in us. Like, this is crazy. And they come back with all these stories and all these things. And Jesus says to them in in Luke 10, 20, hey, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What is he saying? He's saying, don't get your joy from the power that I give you. Get it from what I've, the power that I've, I've, I've given into your hearts, not just to your hands. And, and family, I think if we're following Jesus this year, he's going to give us the ability to do crazy things. Like I'm just praying for that and believing that, that he, he's going to give us discernment over spiritual things, that he's going to give us the ability to share good news in ways that we're not capable of doing. He's going to give us the ability to heal and to see people delivered from oppression. I'm praying for that reality. I hope you are too. Those are good things to pray for. But don't let that be your deepest joy and your satisfaction. Every morning, family, we we have to wake up and remind ourselves daily to rejoice in and to find our deepest satisfaction in what God has done for us in Christ that we stand before the Father 
perfect and cleansed. Not just tidy, but washed perfectly clean with the blood of Christ. And that he's so committed to us that every corner of our hearts will be as, as, as Jesus already purchased them to be. That's who you are if you're in him. And, and when you let that reality wash over you again and again and again, you're going to find joy. That, that, that reality of who you are in Christ is going to work its way down into the deepest foundations of your heart. So much so that it doesn't matter what you encounter today or tomorrow because nothing that you encounter can shake the foundation like that. Every other strategy, every other methodology, every other philosophy, every other religion, it's going to be dependent on what you've done for it. Jesus is the only way that says, here, who you are is based on what I've done for you. And because I'm the one who did it, it can't ever be taken away. Let's pray and ask that that would be the reality. Father, we, uh, we want to be possessed by you. I do pray that that is the desire of our hearts. <clears throat> that we would find our joy in you and you alone. And that as we do, God, we would be transformed. Not just an empty house that looks nice from the outside but a house that's full of the Spirit of God. And that is you live and you breathe in us. That we would find ourselves seven times better off than we were when we began because it's you that's doing the work in us. And God, we want to be agents of your Spirit in the world. We want to to trust you enough to to have the boldness in our faith enough to say, if you want us to share good news with the lost, if you want us to, to, to pray in faith that you'll heal someone, if you want us to, to, to be bold in, in the way that we, we discern and even cast out demonic oppression in people, that you'd lead us to do that, God. But don't let us forget the foundation of who we are in you. Make us your church, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.